Welcome to The Row Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. Sacrifice, crucial roles, high fits, compassion, great passion, fiction, gold, ultimate goal, glory, relentless training, pain, pain. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to another epic episode of the Rose Show. As always, it's myself, Lawrence Britton. And this is Jake Green, and today we have a very special episode for you guys out there. And uh, you've you've known us for a while now, and you know we get we get into the nitty gritty with you know the the top elite athletes around the world that have come and gone through our, our wonderful sport. Now we have something a little bit different. Uh, still focusing on the the real elite side of rowing, but we're speaking to one of the best known coaches out there and one of the best coaches of all time, Noel Donaldson. Um, and this episode was amazing because because it's a coach, uh, you, you you can kind of get into a different perspective about elite sport and and the things that go into making such good athletes and good rowing boats. And you know we get a little bit more technical than our other episodes. We get into the rhythm, we get into the technique, um, we get into a bit about the feeling and the, and the flow of the rowing stroke. And I think you guys are going to love it. It's a bit of a, a change of pace, but still hitting some really good content and you know I was a real big fan um, of this episode and yeah tell tell the audience what Noel Noel has been up to yeah Jake I think you hit the nail on the head there you know we get all that insight from an athlete's perspective on you know racing and you know their technical view of their crew and and whatnot but getting it from a coach's perspective is like kind of a, a little like breath of fresh air or, or just something so different uh, such a different perspective so I mean, Jake covered all the, the technical stuff that we were looking at, and I was just uh, thinking about when Noel speaks about an athlete's pattern. You know, it's a little part of the, the episode coming up, and, you know, it's talking about how an athlete has this certain pattern that they row, and he can only influence it to uh, a certain extent. And, and you know, uh, he, uh, he accepts that he can't just completely change, and everyone can't just row one, in his mind the perfect pattern. So it's really, really interesting and, and really awesome. And, I mean, Noel is an absolute legend. You know, he started off as a Cox uh, rowing for, for Australia and then he moved into the coaching position and he coached James Tompkins, who's the greatest sweep row of all time, and then went into the, the senior elite team with James Tompkins and coached the amazing, awesome, foursome uh, Australian rowing's probably greatest crew of all time where uh, this awesome foursome won the 92 and 96 Olympic Games in the men's four, which is the last crew to win it before GB's GB, dominant role. Yeah. They haven't lost the, the four since the awesome foursome. Yeah, and I think Noel's also, besides being a coach directly involved with memorable crews, he also, after the awesome foursome, he was kind of, um, he got involved in maybe, you know, a bit of a, a higher up role in Australian rowing, taking charge and a lot of leadership into the whole Olympic team going through to the 2000 and 2004 Olympic Games. And um, then he also was involved after 2012 with Dick Tonks. He got involved uh, with the Kiwi Pair and coached them. And, you know, we don't need to uh, give any introduction to to them. So, you know, he's he's really been up there with the finest coaches of all time and he has coached some incredible crews. So there's no there's no second guessing his street cred. Uh, he really, really 
a touch nice stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think exactly that. I think he's possibly one of the best coaches of all time. He's coached the best athletes of all time and they've had the best results of all time. Yeah. So it uh, kind of does it, does it all justice. Oh, many you, Olympic golds. I mean, it just those few races that we spoke about, not even the, the, the direct crews that he's coached is, you know, that's three Olympic games done and dusted golds all yeah. round. And then being head coach of a, of a system that won, you know, multiple uh, Olympic yeah. medals is also phenomenal. So really, really interesting and such an awesome guy. And I mean, he was really dug in. He didn't kind of mince his words and try and, uh, you know, give us the runaround. He, he really got into the, the nitty gritty of it and it was so fantastic to have that much detail and that much insight uh, into, into our amazing sport. And if you want any more info, I would go back and go and listen to Drew Ginn. You know, he's talking about those races and that crew and, and there's a whole lot of stories that really you can pick up on both sides. And then again, Eric Murray uh, also had a lot to say because I think it was such a difficult time and we get into it into the episode when, you know, Noel now had to take over from Dick Tonks of a crew that was already uh, world record holders, uh, four years unbeaten in the, in the men's pair. And now uh, Noel has to come in, take over and change it up, but not too much to, to disrupt yeah. it and, and to kind of maintain this winning streak. So really, really interesting. I thought that was just like such a kind of intense uh, part of our chat. Yeah, and I think for the younger listeners out there, please go do yourself a favor, go some watch some footage, do some a bit of homework on the awesome foursome from the 90s. It's a reason that they got that moniker and it's a reason why they're so famous. I mean, the rhythm that they rode, I think they had a huge impact on not only Australian crews, but, you know, crews all over the world. Well, that's also, that's what makes the, the episode so epic yeah. because when we talk to Eric, he talks about how they watched the awesome foursome yeah. and like <laughs> soaked up their rhythm and that's how they wanted to row, that's how they wanted to perform and now suddenly they're getting coached by uh, the, the guy by that the goes to Awesome Foursome. So crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of like, we, it's quite cool because we're tying a lot of the knots that, you know, we've we've had a lot of stories on there and we're kind of connecting the dots here. So that's yeah. awesome. But, you know, besides that, guys, uh, you know, thanks so much for your support. Big shout out to all our patrons out there. You guys are absolute legends. We, you know, we can't really be doing this anymore without you guys. And, you know, your support means a lot. Um, for those of you that are interested, you can head over to our Patreon, have a look there, support us if you want. If you, you know, also besides that, Instagram, you know, get in touch with us on our social media feeds. You can email us personally, go follow us, tell someone about the show and get it, get the word out there. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you covered all the bases there, guys. Just uh, share the show. Uh, the more people that hear about our show, that listen to the show, makes a huge difference for us. And if you really want to support us, head over to Patreon. You get, uh, you get these episodes early access. So you guys, uh, the, the Patreon accounts, uh, people would have heard this uh, at least a couple of weeks before you guys. And yeah, it just makes us uh, makes us able to to do the show more, more often. And yeah, I think it gives you guys better content. So if you want a bit more rowing in your life, head over to that. Um, and yeah, otherwise just share the show. Let your friends know about it. And uh, we... We've kind of added in this little piece uh, in our intro on uh, Jake and Lawrence because lots of people are asking about what we've been up to and it is really difficult to, to get episodes out uh, timelessly on, uh, on these, these kind of uh, this part of the season for us because uh, me, and, me and Jake have been up in the Lesotho Mountains. I'm sure you've seen on our Instagram, if you haven't, go look there at what the Lesotho is a country that's inside South Africa 
but not part of South Africa. <laughs> uh, it's up in the mountains and we go there to, for training camp and it's been phenomenal. We've been up here. Jake has been rowing in the men's pair and I've been rowing in the men's four and the, the four is off to A Switzerland. Big job ahead for these guys. Yeah, we're off to Switzerland in uh, two weeks for the dreaded late, late qualification. qualification. And just even just saying those words reminds me of so many episodes <laughs> we've spoken about these people racing the late qualification and how awful it is and how I vowed never to race it again and Yet I find myself going back to to race this uh, awful regatta again. So hopefully that goes well, and then we're off to to the rest of the year. So um, it's going to be quite interesting going off to Switzerland. We got a lot of COVID protocol, basically COVID tests coming out of our ears. COVID tests, quarantine, flipping. I'm so flipping terrified of walking into an airport right now. I've got the fear of God of getting sick. Yeah, it's like it's quite weird for us because we've now been up in Lesotho. It's, this is our uh, eighth, uh, no, sixth week. We've been up here six weeks in our bubble, just training it out, uh, really not sweating about COVID at all. You know, we, we basically see maybe like 10 people come in and out of our, our venue every week, mm. max. Yeah. And we have no contact with them. So we're kind of in our bubble and we're just cruising along. And now suddenly we now have to go on a plane. We've done all the hard work and it's just about getting there to to go and do the yeah. racing and it's it's really quite a terrifying uh, feat ahead of us. So hopefully that all goes well and we're able to to get to Switzerland and race a little hearts out and see how that goes. Yeah, but keep your eyes peeled. Hopefully you'll see both of us on the, the racing track soon. We're both really excited. It's been way too long since we've been uh, ripping it up on, on the Lucerne track especially. It's going to be fantastic to get back on the, the Rotti, Lake of the Gods. That's for sure. But that's enough of us. And for now, let's enjoy an episode. Part one, Noel Donaldson. Sweet, guys. Enjoy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another awesome episode of The Row Show. Today, we have a very special guest on the show. Today, we are speaking to Noel Donaldson from Australia. Noel, thanks so much for coming on the show, and it's great to have you on. Thanks, Jake. Uh, pleasure to be here and also to you, Lawrence. Yeah, awesome stuff. So we're going to kick straight into probably, you know, one of the most famous crews and periods that you, you've, you've been involved with. And it's, it's a very, I know when I was coming through, started off rowing and this was a big crew that was referenced in terms of, you know, speaking about rhythm, technique, relaxation, just the art of rowing in general. And of course, I'm referring to the awesome foursome. And I'm just interested to to chat to you about the beginnings of that four and, you know, just to learn a bit, you know, how did that four come together? And at the beginning, did you realize that you had something special? Because there was clearly a very special connection between those four rowers. And you do see it from time to time in the rowing world. You get that X factor people talk about between rowers, that synergy. And I'm just interested to hear about the beginnings of, uh, of that four's career with you and, and your thoughts on that. Yeah, it, it is an interesting one because it's a um, sort of a change in philosophy of rowing in Australia at the time from what had been traditional too. So um, uh, apart from the results there to be sort of forerunners of um, sort of showing maybe there's another way to do it or how you should select crews because the tradition was to always select the men's eight sort of in, in that men's sweep uh, category. And uh, yeah, there's been some his- you know, some success here, here and there with it, but the majority of those guys had actually rode in the uh, 88 Seoul Olympics and came fifth and not the result they wanted to, had a, a quiet 1989. 
and, and as we'll say, sort of jokingly, they wanted to row the four because um, they didn't want to pull four other people down the course, so to speak. You know, so it, it, there was some element, I suppose you could say, maybe rele- you know, relevance to that, and you know, try to make it humorous because you never want to criticise your mate, sort of thing. But um, it, it gave them an opportunity to say, well, maybe we could do this. You know, we could row the four. So it was put to the Australian selectors at the time, and so of course that's something brand new for them. They hadn't really thought about it and whatever. But um, we'd had a good domestic season. And we had two pairs with inside the four that were going pretty quickly as well too. So all the makings were there to say, well, this this could be quite a good four. So the the selectors were prepared to give us a, a role. Um, in those days, it wasn't quite the World Cup one two threes as it is, but you still had sort of Lucerne as the same type of regatta and you know, other European regattas. And so they gave us an opportunity and we competed in um, Rechiche in the Czech Republic uh, in a Cox four and a Coxus 4 in, in a two-day regatta. And uh, we were going pretty well in the Cox 4, but it was pretty lumpy water and we ended up getting a crab when we were rowing through the Germans who were the current world cha- and Olympic champions. So we probably were going to go okay in that boat. And um, and then the next day we came out and rowed in the uh, Coxus 4 and won that event. So the selectors then sort of choosing Cox, Coxus 4. And of course, we had a Coxon with us and he's a great mate of mine and, uh, has been for for life and whatever, and we had to sort of tap him on the shoulder and say, "Well, we're, we're going to go without you, little fella." And um, he was he was worried that, that we'd send him home and those sort of things. And we said, "No, no, you know, we're going to Lucerne next. You know, you're coming on the trip with us as well too." And um, so we went there, you know, with no understanding or expectation of how we would actually go, but you know, ended up you know breaking a world best time at that particular time and winning and. Uh, yeah, some of those guys can remember the audio, which was in German um, at the time, and or Swiss German there, and and the word unglaublich and unbelievable sort of came up, and and so some of those sort of things you remember as if they were yesterday, and it was a really quality row, and and we came home, and because the World Championships were in Australia that year, rowing got a little bit more publicity. And uh, so they went from being awesome, A-W-E-some, to, um, you know, then sort of taking a, a coin out of the OAR, the rowing uh, title, and, and, it, and it sort of stuck because in Australia we'd had a really good swimming team that were Olympic gold medalists called the Mean Machine. And uh, and so they sort of likened it that, uh, you know, the awesome foursome could be rowing's equivalent of the Mean Machine. And so it got legs, and, of course, then we won in Australia in 1990. So... Yeah, you know, the nickname stuck. Um, you know, in such a small sport in this country, there, you know, sort of getting some notoriety and those sort of things. So it, it was a pretty sort of whirlwind go from let's see how this goes into, you know, being the world best sort of thing straight away, and and, and people then analysing what the makeup was. And you mentioned it in some of it there, you know, the rhythm and the length they rode and and skills and all those sort of things there too, which was just, for a lot of those guys, was sort of their background a little bit. It wasn't like, you know, we had anything special going. They just rode the way they felt they needed to row. And we probably tidied it up a little bit from then, but the, the, the fundamentals have been done by them and, you know, other coaches. And, you know, I'd had James at school and, yeah, there's, there's enough of us there that we're all on the same sort of uh, wavelength about how we sort of taught rowing at that particular stage. So sort of fell into place, but we, we probably not, not externally capitalised on it, but uh, because the world were noticing it there too, you know, we certainly made sure that, you know, we knew that we were a presence and the way we rowed and carried ourselves and everything was all part of the, the whole mantra of that particular crew at that time. Mm. So uh, you already touched on uh, James Tompkins, and, I mean, you've coached some 
in phenomenal athletes over over your time and you know james tompkins is definitely one of my uh rowing heroes i have watched uh, watched nearly all of his races and you know being able to come away with you know world championship gold medal in in every single sweep event you know he's he's really right up there in the in the greats and as you you also said that you coached him through school so what was it like kind of uh, what was he like at school, and then what was it like uh, going into the the n- international kind of journey with him? Um, and yeah, yeah. I mean, James got a bit of cheek about him, and um, <laughs> this story been told plenty, pl- uh, plenty of times as well too. And um, uh, when we first, when he was in year eleven at school, you know, he was pretty good. Um, uh, I used to work with a, uh, one of the parents who was a doctor and, and we would often sort of, you know, do some basic assessment of the kids and the, I'd ask the doctors, out of the top 16 kids in the school, you know, who would you select into the first boys' eight? And, uh, you know, based on sort of medical information and stature and those sort of things. And he went through it all and, and then he came to James and, and he said, oh, I don't think he'd be in there too. He's just a bit too, you know, a bit too light-framed. He was about... The height he is now at seventy three kilos, you know? and uh, and I said, well, you normally get these things right, but you got that one wrong because he's first picked. And um, so he said, oh, okay, interestingly enough. So um, uh, in in that particular year, James stroke the crew, and um, uh, he had a bit of cheek about him, and, and you, you sort of couldn't let him sort of be too cheeky there. And I kicked him out of the boat club at one stage there, sort of in the early part of that particular season, which he thought was very unfair. But um, I was sort of a just in needing to make sure we kept him grounded and level a little bit, you know, not too sort of uh, overconfident. And, um, and I don't know whether it worked or not when you analyse it 30-odd years later. But um, uh, then we actually rode the boat race and we were beaten on the line by millimetres, basically, um, which would have been the school's first ever win and what we call our head of the river. And we got behind a fair bit and uh, and then stormed home over 1,500 metres and uh, yeah, I thought I probably had the boat rigged quite well and everything there too. But then, yeah, when you crunch the numbers many, many years later, you know, it was all the boat was rigged too lightly. So you cost us a you know, head of the river, you know. So we can say that tongue in cheek and, and know that we gave it a good rattle. But um, yeah, he, he was good to coach, and you know, he was he, he showed it right from even say year eight at school. He was this gangly kid and whatever, but he just seemed to have a little bit of naturalness about him and. And then we, I had him the following year. We didn't have a crew as good the following year, but, um, you know, he was the mainstay of it, at least you know, giving a reasonable shot of themselves and really keen then to want to go to club rowing. He loved it. Um, the way he finished his schooling was a bit sort of non-traditional to what other kids might actually do, and he found himself at Mercantile Rowing Club, and he was in then the uh, youth oaks under 21, and that crew just smashed everyone and that sort of first year. So uh, at that stage, I... I, I I was around the club. I was the chairman of selectors of the club, but you know, not directly coaching him. So I, I didn't really coach him again until, apart from you know, cameo bits here and there, until really we got the four going. So, um, but Ben's you know quite I suppose instrumental in the background of trying to do things to help him out. But uh, then we had obviously you know a fairly long period together because we went to the four and then he went to the pair and you know I became a head coach and so I was sort of trying to help him in the next days when he. Run with Drew and then Duncan and no, sorry, no, um, um, Run with Drew sort of in, in the comeback of their sort of period there and then when he rode in the Australian 8 at the end of his career so uh, had a long time and he's still around at the moment he's 
helping coaching at one of the schools. His, his kids went to the school and he's putting a little bit back. And there's a funny story about him the other day. He uh, He's coaching these kids and they, they row up the river a little bit and you push them off and you, you lose them as they row past an island and you've got to go around the outside and collect them again. So, And there's a, a coffee shop not far away. So James stopped at the coffee shop to get a coffee and then uh, went down thinking he was going to find his crew and the city's about four kilometres away and then he gets to the city and he's asking us, has anybody seen my crew? <laughs> and... Uh, and then he ends up having to ride back the other way. So I think the the, the kids had rode about seven kilometres before he actually oh. found them. So, uh, <laughs> oh, so we're giving him a bit of a hard time about responsibility, you know, looking after these young kids. So no, he's <laughs> yeah. he's just got a nature about him, and uh, you know, everyone loves him being around the river. I really like uh, the way you spoke about uh, kicking him off the team um, in the beginning there, because you know, a constant theme of athletes we interview is like going through some difficulty along the way you know i don't think any of our athletes have uh the people that we've interviewed have had like an easy run winning all the time and never had like a big setback as, at some points along the way to kind of bring out the best in them and then to to make that progress yeah i mean james is you know one that's won a lot more than he's um uh, than he's lost so to speak mm. um but if through his laconicness and you know his lovely nature and those sort of things there too, when he's not going as well as he'd like to or he's under threat there too, you actually see the really good side of him there too because he actually gets quite nervous about it and worried and you know, anxious about what have I got to do to get better and, and those sort of things there too. So uh, normally, you know, you can flip the switch uh, quite well. There's one sort of um, funny story though there who, came in post a row and he was looking for some feedback in the, in the debrief. And I said, he said, how, how was I going? How did my blade work? And that, that's always been a bit of an in-house joke about his front turn that flicks the blade in sort of thing. And, and I said, Oh, you're a little bit indirect around the front and you're tugging on it a little bit and maybe a little bit of rush. And I sort of pointed out a few things there that I thought turned wasn't well. He said, well, why didn't you just tell me to row properly? And I would have, you know, so, uh, so he, he was quite lucky that, um, it was quite easy to redirect him back to his pattern, you know, pretty easy where some people lose it and you're trying to rebuild the stroke and all those sort of things. He's really lucky through his whole career that he never strayed much away from, um, you know, what was his good pattern. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And you, you said something earlier that I'm really excited to get into. You, you, uh, you spoke a little bit about the, you know, the rhythm and the length. And I wanted to talk a bit about the rhythm of the Awesome Foursome because – I think that's one thing that makes it such a distinctive crew because it, it feels like they've stayed, that crew has stayed relevant and, and, and well-known throughout the years. I think not necessarily on the success, obviously they're incredibly successful, but I think more so because of the way they rode and especially at the time. And one of those things is the rhythm. And you know, rhythm is something in the rowing world that's incredibly difficult to pin down and explain and coach because it, it is naturally a ab abstract concept there's nothing you know fine point about it you can't say precisely that okay at this point you need to rock over or get the blade in or change this it's abstract you have to explain what it feels like you have to try to communicate to the athlete you know what are you what are you looking for and it's, it's never about a, a, a fine thing you can put down so i'm just interested to hear from you bearing in mind you know how difficult it, it is actually to coach rhythm and both you know how you went about you know guiding them 
with the rhythm and making sure that it came to be such a distinct and uh, important part of their stroke? Yeah, and I think the sort of um, we've also got to sort of reflect, you know, on, on the evolution. And as I've reminded them in our reunions and things we've had recently there too, that you know, they're world best at 5.52. And then they'll say, yeah, with Macons. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, or or it's, it's still a fair bit slower than what the world best is is today too because the sport will always move on. Yeah, so yeah. In, in, in those days, you didn't train as hard. Um there wasn't sort of that sort of great um, need for power that there is today. You know, power's a really, really important determinant in performance these days there too. So it, the, no one had really sort of cottoned on, you know, past you know, length and rhythm too much in terms of, you know, what were the key ingredients of the sport and certainly us from down under where, you know, we kept it pretty simple and, and, and the like. But in those reunion photos recently, and you see them, a lot of them are – you know, with medals around their necks or whatever, or you know, it's in Europe somewhere, and their sons, you know, got sun, you know, tan bodies and those sort of things. And you think, gee, they were a pretty healthy-looking bunch of fellas at the time there, and a bit skinny, a bit skinny almost, you know, <laughs> not, not sort of carrying any uh, sort of you know extra muscle, so to speak, there. And then you sort of you try and join a few dots together, and and you think, yeah, well, they were yeah you know, sort of lean in one sense, you know, so. Rowing long, they were unencumbered to do that. You know, they had the frames to be able to do that. And and one of the things we'd sort of talked about, and Sam Patton, part of the initial awesome foursome in 1990, he was instrumental on it because he was a couple of years older than the other guys there too. And we sort of made a, a, a pact that we were going to row longer than anyone else in the world. And then we had a sort of a picture of Langvoits and that sort of thing there that, that was actually there. And, of course, rowing with the Macon oars, you know, the front end of the stroke wasn't anywhere near as hard. So you you, you could row. And, and then we had Teo Kerner come to Australia and, he gave his impression of the skill side of it in, in very few words because his English wasn't great. So you sort of had to pick on what's the key message in you know, in here, the, you know, the great East German uh, head coach. And um, so both uh, an integration of the training philosophy in terms of what we did with endurance training, but also trying to build the middle and the finish of the stroke. So if you can sort of picture loping along the course at 34, 36 strokes a minute, long leave and sending the boat away and being done with make on oars was um, – that all fitted at the time, you know, in terms of their their stature, um, you know, what we were trying to do philosophically with our training, and therefore the way in which we rode. So, which was quite interesting because in '92 when the um, cleavers came in, we resisted for quite a while to row with the cleavers, you know, and and you know you sit back and watch what others actually do. Being beaten was a, probably a fairly um, good catalyst to then saying, well, maybe Make we need change. to. And, Make the change and get with it there too, but um, uh, because you know, you you, pat, you, know, you pick up a little bit of speed, but the front end gets a bit more direct. You've got a bigger blade surface area, uh, and the and the like. So therefore, it did change the way they row a small amount. You know, their their basic pattern and all the grounding work you've actually done is there, but then you change the technology. So. If they had started with cleavers, I think you know, it, it might have been a little bit of a different story in terms of what the rhythm might have looked like. But because 
everything just fitted together about what the model was looking like. Plus, there was a real pride thing. You know, we were going to row longer than everyone else and we are going to make sure everyone watched us. So out of that length came lever and acceleration and boat run and carry and those sort of things there too, which only took you to a certain speed. But, um, you know, at the time that was quick enough to beat most people. So I think we got to sort of reflect not that we were trying to do anything sort of out of the box but it was what was fairly contemporary at the time and suited our model and suited our capability also yeah it was it was such an interesting uh time i think for for the for rowing to be swapping from macons to uh to the cleaver or and you know i think it was martin cross who was uh who, who raced at that olympics as well and they said that they'd rowed them they'd kept swapping between the two oars because they found they could row a longer uh they had to be much harder on the catch mm. because the, the Macon didn't get the connection that the Cleaver did. And then when they would swap back, they would find they had uh, much more impulse on the, on the front end of the, of the stroke to kind of uh, get going because the, of the, the two different, uh, different oars. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And so, um, you know, we were able to capitalise and, and also probably maintain, you know, enough of that length lever rhythm that had been created take the advantage, be able to go a little bit quicker because you know, the technology allowed you to do so and, and, and therefore the people are still looking at you. And then when you win Olympic Games, of course, you know, you become very much a role model for others to look at. You know, every gold medalist probably fits into that sort of category there too. So we still had enough carryover. And then when you win in 92, then, you know, people are looking at you still with what they remember the year or two before. But, um, yeah, there was subtle enough changes uh, to, to, you know, to move with the technology and move with the times. Yeah, of, of course. And then I also want to get into a bit more about the length like you've been speaking because – Obviously, the length is maybe the most important part of a rowing stroke. And um, just for, like, the listeners and, and things out there, I'm interested for, like, a coach's perspective on, like, why the length is so important and, like, how – what's the best way to achieve it? Because it's not – you know, a lot of people think that, you know, reaching as far as you can is the most important part where it actually it's, – it's more about where you find that connection and the length of the stroke throughout while you're you actually connected in the water how long you can then maintain that connection through the finish is actually the most important and you know if you find a lot of athletes out there the the big mistake they make is when they go to the front they just lunge in their their body weight is not well supported and they're just dropping the blade in without real connection so maybe just a quick coaches 101 from someone like you on the on the length of the stroke yeah i mean i I don't think it's as important today um and and probably for some of the reasons that you've actually mentioned, mentioned, you know, I was a physical education teacher for many years as well. And so you sort of understand the background about where kids come from and you know, play theory and, and those sort of things. And of course, nowadays, you know, the younger kids as they come through, they haven't had that outdoor experience, you know, up and down the street and the billy carts and climbing trees and those sort of things. So it takes a little bit longer, certainly in terms of core strength and, you know, getting their you know, young bodies framed up, but those guys were were doing active other sports and playing football. Uh, our, our Aussie rules football, so they were quite conditioned to um, being able to manage and manipulate their bodies athletically quite well. So then the, the then the secret to it then is just your execution. You know your hand skills. So you get out and you can you know, find where the water is and you know, drop the blade in and, and not lose your way. And, and you had to be with Macons, you know, in those days, you know, a smaller blade and 
So their hand skills were, were really good, and you know, a lot of them had come from wooden oars as well too. You know, in their early days, where you know you had to be far more of a craftsman about it. But you know, the chase for speed and the technology and those things changes, and so then people misinterpret length and uh, and don't have things like the core strength to be able to get it. And then, then all of a sudden, you know, it's it's the effective length that sort of changes there. So yeah, we're able to row probably long, but also effectively long too, because they could stay over the work and, and, and hold their posture, hold their core, you know, good hand skills from you know, a really good athletic background. But, you know, we don't see as much of that these days. And so you have to, you know, uh, get people fitter and, and more able to do that. You have to sort of coach it a little bit more in there too. And, and, and of course, you know, the, we know that the rates have gone a little bit higher and everything as well these days now too and as the boats go faster. So somewhere on the line there's got to be a little bit of a shift, you know, from loping along long and strong at 34 strokes a minute to now, you know, being really powerful at 40-plus strokes a yeah. minute, you know, for, all the way down a 2K course. And um, at the at the end now the, the – uh, the end requirement will be the thing that determines sort of how people actually row. And, and so that has changed significantly, you know, in that period of time of which only a certain number of the world are able to actually execute in, yeah. in, in my opinion. And a lot can't do it. And they do exactly how you described it. There's this lunge and they misconnect the front and then the, the legs go down in a million miles an hour and the blade's not in the water. But, you know, for the, for those guys, you know, they were really well coordinated and they could get that place push hang sequence you know down quite easily it didn't it wasn't a difficult thing for them to do at the time then yeah of course and uh not you just brought up the 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 recent evolution of the, the higher rating crews out there and obviously there's a massive one is the the australian four of the last four years has been absolutely just smashed the door open straight from 2017 with their you know the way they took the the race by the scruff of the neck really strong uh start and no one was really catching them and I'm interested to listen to your thoughts on that evolution to the highest stroke rate. Is it is it something natural? Is it a natural evolution? Do you think it's going to continue, or do you think it's just a a different kind of um, distinct style that's popped up? Another way that you can do it um, that's that can be as successful as maybe the more traditional way. Yeah, look, I think there's you know the old cliche. There's many ways to skin the cat, you know. Of course, yeah. <laughs> If you get a group of uh, passionate coaches together and you have about half a dozen beers and <laughs> and, and then the mind really starts flowing Anarchy. and those sort of things, yeah. you know, uh, everyone will be really opinionated, so to speak, about, you know, the right way and the wrong way to do it and everybody knows how to do it and, and the like. And I suppose, you know, I've probably been caught up in that cycle as well. Wrong to think that I haven't been um, there, but I am open-minded in terms of, you know, there could be sort of several ways to actually do it. Um, I, I attended uh, Chris Kortonowski from the United States organised a coaching conference in 2017 after Sarasota, and he asked uh, Ian Wright, the Australian head coach, to speak. He asked uh, Uwe Bender to speak, me, me to speak and whatever. And, you know, so Ian got up and spoke about his current philosophy and, of course, that forward won really well there. And so people were all ears. And then Uwe got up and he's sort of taken over from Rolf Holtmeyer coaching the German aid and they hadn't lost a race either. And he said, well, I don't do that. Um, so it was a sort of mm-hmm. a really poignant sort of period amongst, you know, offering sort of uh, our services to the US coaches there about pointing out that there's, you know, there, there are many ways to actually do it. But uh, I, I do think even even the crews that are more 
maybe even temper, tempoed and maybe not rate so high. If you go back and crunch the numbers, they'll still be a point or two higher than what they were a decade ago and maybe three points from two decades ago, so, so to speak. So I think rating is a really important part, but it's not unlike what I was saying before about the, the origins of the awesome force and we integrate everything together. You know, your training, yeah. what you do in training is what you do in racing and what you fuel your body with and, you know, what your expectations are. And when you, when you try and join all those dots together, you know, some crews will use that as their, not only the way in which they row sort of, um, uh, technically, but also strategically as well too. You know, we get three lengths out in front, we're going to be hard to mow down. So, and, and, and immediately the rest of the world will be then watching that and saying, right, this is how we can do it. Or if we get there yeah. and we can put enough pressure on them, we can do this and we can do that. And, you know, w- we were in that cycle towards the end of the awesome force and when we sort of struggled with a bit of injury and the like against, you know, Rigro Pinson et al. in the four too. You know they they then took over. The Aussies sort of had it for a couple of Olympic cycles and and across the two countries have probably ruled Cox's four rowing no, more than 100%. anyone else in the, in the last you know twenty or thirty years. And because they dictated it, so we only ever had one race against them. It was at Henley, and uh, they just knocked us off in nineteen ninety eight with Matt Pinson rowing along, taking a hand off the oar, punching the air. It was sort of <laughs> we were a great scalp for them, so to speak, and. The Stuart, Henley Stewards didn't like that, of course, but um, and now he and now he is one. Um, from that sort of point, so there were those great rivalries and things where you wanted to take a scalp because of we can get them, you know. And the British fall was a bit the same, you know. It was we will get out in front and no one will get past us, type thing, you know. If we had had enough goes against them as a coach, I would have loved to have had a few rattles against them because then you would have tried to work out well how can we do that, you know? Yeah. Where is it that we'll put the acid on them and once we got them. We've got them, and I think those crews that lead, um, like that, like the Aussie Four, the rest of the world straight away say, right, they're a target. We'll see if we can find a way that, you know, because the human body can only do so much, you know, and so if you start getting mowed down, then there's a whole range of things. Physiologically, you might be gone, but mentally you can see them coming at you and whatever is really hard to sort of regenerate as well. So, so there's a whole heap of other factors in there. It's not just about the the rating and those sort of things. It's about the race strategies and what you do and how you then execute it. And, of course, in 2019, the Aussie Ford didn't execute it in the final very well at all. So, uh, like, and, and that's okay because, you know, everyone will make a mistake every now and again about yeah. what they're actually trying to do. It doesn't change the fact that you might go back and revisit it or reseed it or just change it a little bit but still have the intent to come down, you know, plus 40 uh, all the way, and, and I think those things are really achievable. Why be anyone who says it's wrong or you shouldn't try and do it? You know, yeah. at the end of the day, there'll be one winner, and you can do it however you like, so to speak. Of course, of course. Um, and yeah, I think uh, you know that's that's really well put. And I think one nice thing about the sport, and I especially what I especially see is when you see crews that come around and they kind of they break away. Because I mean, rowing. If we if we be honest, there's is I mean, there are some variables to it. But if you take a a broad look over the top, it is very. It's a repetitive sport, and there's a very similar style across countries and nations. So when you see crews that come along with a bit of a distinctive style or something that they do differently, it's a very fresh perspective on the racing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then, uh, so just on that topic, I think I want to dig into. I mean, you you've you you're talking about the awesome foursome, and now we st- we're still discussing racing that was in 2019. So over the years, what has been like your what have been the changes to rowing or the evolutions in rowing that you've enjoyed the enjoyed the most or, or kind of, I don't know, inspired you the most? 
Yeah, I think the fact that it does change, I, th- I think it actually does. You know, it would be, I think you'd all run out of sort of energy in one sense. Maybe, you know, I think, you, you know, Kiwi Pear obviously won eight years in a row and, and you like to actually do that, but it wasn't done the same way or from a similar maybe race, but, but executed a different way, prepared a different way and the like there too. So there's always a challenge to be able to have some respect for the opposition to know what you actually need to actually do. So... You know, you, you've really got to keep abreast of what others do, and I think there's quite a lot of coaches who don't actually do that. You know, um, and that's that's okay because you know we try and teach athletes to control the controllables. You know, do what you need to do, and and those sort of things. So I, I'd certainly be preaching that sort of um, to, to athletes, but as a coach. I'd be rather foolish if I wasn't sort of keeping an eye on what the trends are or what someone else might actually be doing. And, you know, the world's a great place these days because most people put it online and you can see snippets yeah. of it and every, everybody knows everybody and all those sort of things. But you don't necessarily know, you know, you're sort of, you're, you're only guessing. And again, you're a bit silly if you then think you've seen something or you heard something and, you know, you're going to run with something because you think you know what someone else is doing because uh, you don't know the entire background of it. Yeah. But I was certainly always interested to follow it through and to see what is it we might be missing, what what could someone else be doing that, you know, might be taking the sport to a slightly different level as well. So I think being contemporary with it and moving with the times and accepting change and those sort of things there has been um, yeah, something I've really enjoyed uh, over the time and even more so in the last couple of years now that I'm not as actively involved with at the senior level. You know, you can sit back, um, not as a critic necessarily, but you can sit back and look at what everyone else is doing and think, well, why wouldn't I still enjoy the thrill of learning more and seeing if I can sort of still stay you know, ahead of the game? Not that I think I'll be making a comeback or anything like those, but, but you're sort of trying to get a really good feeling that you really understand the sport well and where it's going and and um, you know not not be left behind if you were in that in that involvement. So I've always enjoyed that that particular challenge uh, as a coach all, all the way through, rather than just thinking I've got a recipe and I'll just keep doing the same thing. You know? After a while, it won't taste as good, so to speak. So, yeah, it's sort of probably the, the most enjoyable part of uh, you know, a, a long journey is just moving with the times. Mm. Sure, what a, an awesome answer. I really enjoyed that. That was that was a good uh, piece of insight. So you touched on the on the Kiwi Pair, and we're going to jump around a little bit now. But uh, stepping into the Kiwi Pair, obviously they won uh, for, for four years in a row already when you, when you took them on, and how, were you excited to to take them on? Like, was it a uh, yeah? Were you excited? Was it a good challenge uh, for you that you were ready to to take on? Yeah, well, there's a sort of a, a little funny story that sits behind, behind that. Is um, uh, I'd been the uh, head coach in Australia. I'd been high performance director and and then a head coach again. And then after London Olympics, um, one of my original coaching staff, Chris O'Brien, became the uh, the head of uh, rowing in Australia. And, um, you know, so Chris asked me to head up the development sort of side of the sport, you know, sort of had a long sort of period in it and whatever. And and um, and, and I was quite passionate about that because when I was high performance director, I was part of our high performance team setting up the development department of rowing Australia, which, you know, exists very strongly today and which, and which I'm back sort of working in, so to speak, at state level. So I understood the importance of development and where it sort of sat in terms of making sure you know, we can feed the system. But at the same time, Alan Cotter, who was the 
uh, High Performance Director of Rowing in New Zealand, and Alan and I had coxed against one another at world level, and so we knew one another quite well, and two combative coxswains, so to speak, and, you know, good mates, and he rang me up and said, what are you doing? You know, we, we, we're we thinking of changing things a little bit here and, and didn't want to coach the guys and the pair. And so New Zealand were having to think about what they actually wanted to do with that sort of side of their men's program. And I said, well, you know, I've, I've got a job here and I'm working in development and the like. I said, but just, just keep the dialogue open. You know, we're both crusty old souls and, you know, we didn't need to make it too formal or anything there too. But um, then they went and then they decided that they would actually um, advertise the position and that they would take someone in for the role, which was very much about coaching Eric and Hamish, but also being part of the, you know, the overall men's sort of side of particularly sweep rowing in New Zealand, because New Zealand sort of built their depth really, really well in the last sort of, you know, decade or so. So when I was uh, interviewed per se, they said, would you actually come, you know, if we offered you the position? And so then I thought, well, that's a weighing scales. Development in Australia Kiwi pair. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so was it a difficult decision from that sort of point of view? You know, the, I, I, I like to think there's not a lot of ego in necessarily in what I do. Others might think differently. But, um, you know, I thought, well, that, what a wonderful experience that would actually yeah. be, you know, co- coaching those guys. And I think I could contribute and, and uh, you know, moving. I sort of had a, a part in time, you know, in a personal life. I could actually do it. You know, had a young family, and we're going to be easy to move, and and those sort of things there too. So I thought, yeah, they what a great great opportunity to go and coach those guys. So, you know, I was like a nervous kitten probably on day one uh, type thing there too. You know, they were to me like they are to everybody else, so to speak. You know, you have enormous respect for them and the like. But um, yeah, it was it was sort of great being involved with them. And, uh, all the way through and you know, keeping the winning record going. That, that was really important. You know, you're under yeah. a bit of pressure to make sure you could actually do it. Lawrence doesn't like it, of course, from Rio there. It's like stormed <laughs> home and whatever, but um, yeah. uh, you know, we're able to do the job anyway. I don't know about, I don't know if it was, it was more the, the third 500 that really crushed us and uh, put the, put the nails in the coffin there. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we can skip through, we can skip through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have yeah. you got a replay of the race there? <laughs> uh, I've watched the race plenty, plenty of, of times. times and, uh, yeah. yeah. Look, it's always uh, awesome to race them. And I mean, you, we're talking about their prestige and, and, and their, their skill, but you know, when we spoke to Eric, I think he was uh, just as nervous and excited uh, getting you as a coach, you know, you had had, uh, you'd been coaching these Australians that they had uh, basically idolized and, and, and taken so much of their rowing from, uh, from those Aussies and then also uh, I think needed or wanted something different. When we spoke to Eric, you know, he, they, I think they were quite nervous of just being able to survive another four years of the training that they were doing. So I think it really, really worked both ways because, uh, I don't know, at least from, from our discussion with Eric, he took a lot of... Uh, you know, there was a few changes to the training program and, and kind of adapted it in a way that they could continue winning and continue performing like they had been. Yeah, yeah I mean, they made it really clear to me very early on that, um, you know, if if you know, if I sort of followed Dick's mantra and that sort of thing there too, and, and obviously that worked and uh, 
in their in their humblest of moments, they give him a little bit of credit, and other times they don't. You know, but um, that's that's life, so to speak. But um, yeah, they they're quite clear that they wouldn't have survived another four years of the, the that type of regime, and uh, we wouldn't have them. So you know, if you don't listen. Uh, it's a fairly important criteria is listening that, um, you know, you, you wouldn't have them. So we knew we needed to make changes. So the good thing about that was, you know, we made some almost like a change every year and we kept it fresh and challenging and got them through and, yeah, and Hamish is still going, which is you know, such a wonderful thing yeah. as well. Yeah, that is, that is fantastic. And then, you know, when I when I was doing the research on your your coaching career, there was a lot of um, there were a lot of dualities and parallels that drew from your coaching position with the QEP. And maybe the first one to talk about is, you know, with the the awesome foursome, it was it was a, it was a new crew that you know under your tenure went from you know its beginnings of a success right through all the way to 1998, and and that was very much under your tenure working with uh, a young crew a group of athletes that got together and you ran that length of that success with them. And then the Kiwi pair is almost very opposite to that where you got involved, you know, halfway through literally the best crew of all time. They hadn't lost. And it must have been so challenging to get involved and say, okay, you know, firstly, let's not, let's not, you know, make any mistakes here. Let's keep the, the winning streak going. But also like, you know, you get involved and all the time you're looking to push the boundaries and, improve how what's it like coaching crew that's you know older athletes they're way more experienced they're very successful what's it like when it comes to coaching the technique or the the direction of okay what are we going to do today that's going to be um make us faster or make us better because it's much more challenging with someone like the kiwi pair versus maybe you know 1990 coaching the awesome foursome and there's maybe a lot of different things you can maybe look to work on yeah that, that's true i mean although towards the end of the awesome foursome um James Tompkins, one of his cheeky stories always was, you know, if we win, we're good. If we lose, it's your fault. So, um, <laughs> That's a good way to do um, it. And certainly behind the scenes, you know, when the Kiwi pair hadn't lost a result too, there was a bit of tongue-in-cheek from the administration saying you're under a bit of pressure here, you know, because uh, if they lose, uh, they'll be pointing the finger your way. So, yeah, I, I get that but, that, that, but that's not why you do it, you know. You, yeah, of course. And, and, you, and you don't, you're not. As I said before, you're always looking at what the opposition are doing for the sake of trying to make sure you stay ahead of the game, not because you're fearful of being beaten. You know, you're always trying to make sure that you're on the front foot. How can we make this go better? How can we make it go better? But there were so many good things about the Kiwi pair, and um, you know, you, you so I soon learned in a short period of time that the critic that I was in watching them row, because we've all seen the video of them when they've been paddling, and yeah. Hamish goes. It goes across the line and he'll tell that story because he's trying to drag big Eric behind him along and things are wobbling all over the place. And so every – and then you see the all go deep and you think, oh, they're no good. Look at those blokes, you know. They'll yeah. get beaten at some stage. Until you then have an understanding of the really positive things that they actually do and, no, they're not going to get beaten too quickly um, and that you've got to leave a lot of the things the same. And um, – such is the nature of the um, of the two guys. Even the very first day, the day I arrived, I flew in. It was selection trials in 2013, day one. Uh, I was allowed to go into the tower because um, in, in those days, as compared to today, the results were a bit secret and you know no one no one knew and you know, the selectors held that power. But I was allowed into the tower and watched the races come down and. 
then I was allowed into the boardroom of the selectors and, you know, and a year later I became one obviously with them and they just gave me an insight about where they're at and what they're trying to do and then they'd organise me to have a meeting with Eric and Hamish. Uh, Alan had sort of set that up at this time, you know, Noel will meet you, coach there, you can have your first opportunity to sit down and have a, a chinwag. Anyway, Eric's not there, which is something, you know, you learn after a while, you know, he's, he's a you know, really busy sort of a guy and he's got a you know, young boy and, and he's trying to you know, balance out sort of you know, other responsibilities in his life. So I'm sitting there and it's just Hamish and I. So I thought, oh, well, that's okay. This one-on-one's not going to actually hurt. So, you know, Hamish and I sat there for quite a long time, just had a talk about everything rowing and the world and everything there. And, and then he talked about himself. He said, oh, you'll see that my oar goes rather deep down the shaft, you know, each stroke. And he said, uh, lots of coaches have uh, tried to change that. You can try if you like. <laughs> and um, my immediate response was, I think we might just leave that alone for the time being. It seems to be working quite well. So there was a fair element of, you know, leave well alone in terms of the things that are working, but listening to them particularly about their training regime and those sort of things there too. So there was great collaboration. Um, Dr. Dan Clues was our physiologist, you know, the two guys and me. And, uh, you know, we worked things progressively, you know, quite quickly that year, but also sort of, you know, very regularly through the four years in terms of what we thought they needed to do that kept them fresh. And, you know, there were other things like rowing the Cox Pair and international travel schedules, a whole range of different things we did to ensure that we were getting the best out of them, you know, year on year and all the time. But, I mean, they're, they're probably greatest claim to fame in one sense was their work ethic, you know, that they uh, they would do anything and everything you like uh, and only on a few occasions would they come back with the classic line that athletes will say to coaches, you know, where did you invent that workout from, so to speak, you know, mm. and you'll say, oh, the bus on the way down to training, you know, those sort of things. And um, But n- normally, you know, they, they would just, whatever you put on the program, you know, they do it. And you know, Eric was a great person to uh, to know what was the work out beforehand. Yeah, Hamish was happy to find out a minute before you were hands on the boat. You know, he knew when to be there. He prepared himself really well in terms of getting organised for the session. Uh, Eric was all across everything that was going to happen and what stroke was going to be where and what effort was going to be where. And, and, uh, and so two completely different sort of people in terms of how they went about it. But you, you normally knew that they trusted one another hugely in terms of their effort. And so it mean, meant that as a coach, you're doing a lot, a lot of just directing and and that sort of thing there too, rather than, um, you know, impose yourself too much. There, there was one thing that I did with them that um, I probably haven't necessarily spoken too much about. They loved combative training. You know, they'd always wanted to, to row against someone. And uh, we'd have a couple of afternoon rows a week there too. And, and it's genuine that you know, Eric had to go to pick up childcare. So our time was our time in terms of we couldn't come at that time where others were there. But it was a deliberate ploy on my behalf to ensure we weren't at the boathouse at the same time as the double and another boat so we could have a training session on our own, which would bring the intensity down somewhat where we could actually, I could probably coach a little more and, you know, just try and work on some fine skills and some touch and feel for the boat, you know. And so, um, yeah, it wasn't, we weren't trying to change too much, but I think, you know, if they had just been bashing, bashing, bashing all the time, there is a danger somewhere on the line. You might lose that bit of touch or a bit of rhythm and the like. So that was something that was a bit of a deliberate ploy on my point of view, just a quiet time with just the two of them. So yeah. 
uh, something I want to go into that you kind of touched on. On uh, so you spoke earlier on uh, James Tompkins, like the stroke pattern, and then you spoke about uh, how Hamish uh, buried the blade quite deep, and that was not something that we we're going to change. So maybe talk in general, not necessarily about us, any athlete in particular, but like about the how much is like intrinsic into the athlete's stroke, and how much kind of you want to change, or how much you think you can change uh, for for an athlete's stroke. Yeah, look, the, the pattern will be there. I think you know. I think we all sort of know that. Um, I, I used an example of um, we went to the uh, Olympic Museum in Lausanne in 1991 before we went to Tampere for the World Champion. No, 1995 before we went to Tampere in the World Championships, and we walked in uh, to the foyer, and they had a they have the. Uh, the boat from the 1968 Olympics in the in the roof hanging there, and they have a loop reel there of the 68 final. So um, the Germans won and, and Australia came second. And rowing in the sixth seat was a guy David Douglas, who's a great mate of mine and um, I coach his daughter in the Sydney Olympics. And and uh, you know we we'd done a bit of rowing together, me coxing him rowing towards the end of his career because he's a bit a bit older than I am. But I looked up and got oh there's Dave Douglas rowing, you know. So that's something like. 20-odd years earlier type stuff, 30 years earlier, because you know the pattern, you know, and, you know, you weren't trying to identify what crew. It was just, oh, there's Dave, you know, straight away. So I've, I've had that in the back of my mind all the time, you know, that people's signature will be their signature and you guys have 10 years off and come back and Roger Barrow will be saying you're still doing the same thing as we were 10 years yeah. ago. So you, your overall pattern is much the same. So as coaches, what we're trying to do is make those small nuance changes certainly to make it blend with other people because if your nuances were completely um, averse to one another there too, you know, you may not be able to bring it enough together to, to get it on the one page there too. So that's one of the reasons why in rowing we need to you know train regularly and have hours in the boat whatever is often we're trying to move people you know 10 percent away whatever it is away from their basic pattern to be able to be able to have that conformity with what the crew's needs actually are and then the if you stop it for a while well you, you know you're back starting again trying to make those changes so uh yeah, not you never say you can't do it or whatever that sort of stuff. But if you understand basic human patterning and motor patterns, and and you know, you grain in particular movements there too, then don't think you can turn it on its head because it's not going to happen. Yeah, of course, and I mean we we've spoken a lot about you know the athletes, and I, f- I find it interesting when you when we talk about distinctive crews and you know what what variables go into what makes a crew distinctive and and you know that's touching on one thing that's so important is a lot of these really good crews that we idolize that we put up there on the on you know up there and on a pedestal and look to emulate is, is actually the athlete's dna the things the personality traits or the idiosyncrasies that they bring and you know the combinations that they have that that actually give the the speed to the boat and and you spoke earlier about you know how um, how Eric was, you know, always wanted to know what the t- training session was and Hamish didn't mind if, if you got there and you told him what it was and like that leads itself well immediately to having a bowman that is really more organized and wants to know what's happening and, and have, have more control and then Hamish a bit loose control and more taking the shots as they come in the stroke seat and that already is a good example of what, of how two different things can lead themselves well to boat speed and, you know, maybe chat a bit about the athlete DNA and how important it is 
that you know their qualities and athletes that make the rowing fast or make the the style um, successful. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And the, the, the continuation, Eric was he steered the boat as well too. So, um, and in his DNA, I always joke about it there too because. He doesn't mind a drink, Eric, and he'd be the first to admit it. He rang me a week or two ago and when we went into lockdown and, and um, we had a chat for about 45 minutes, I think he might have about four beers while we were sort of chatting there. So he's a bit of a larrikin and um, the sort of joke that he could take a telephone call, smoke a cigarette, row and steer the boat all at the same time, you know, and it would be completely unflustered about doing it and, and the boat would be put in exactly the right place. So, you know, he's he just like that, you know, a busy person and he could be active and have you know, multiple tasks going at the same time and still be able to, to, to do it, you know, as they say, uh, you know, chew gum and talk at the same time type of thing there too, whereas, you know, other people aren't, you know, they, they, they might be just focusing on grinding and work, you know, and so there are those different ones there. Uh, you know, James Tompkins, you know, you, you talked before, James, he, he had a, just this rhythmical ease of movement, very well coordinated, you know, a good athlete to the point whereby, you know, he even said early on, he said, I'll make a boat go fast with anybody because, you know, his basic rowing movement was sound that hand, body, slide and just go up and down. I had real athleticism about it. Most people could get in the bow seat and if they had any feeling or sense of what he was trying to do, you know, he'd give them a really good ride. So, a lot of that's DNA, you know, that's that's there in, in their particular pattern. And I think, you know, you can go through lots of good athletes, you know, their, their characteristic will be, um, you know, their rhythm and their skill. You know, people look at the French double, you know, that, that, that you know, for a little lightweight double for a little while there that ruled the world, well, gee, we'd like to be able to do that. But, you know, you had one guy there that was hellishly strong sort of yeah. in there but therefore could row really smoothly. And there's always these examples of there, people, where people, those athletes have that innate ability to do those particular things, but it's very difficult to copy those particular things and to say, you know, so unless you have all the same attributes, you could do it, you know. You know, Redgrave and Pinsett were horrendously powerful human beings and, mm. you know, just knew how to pick the boat and drive the boat and that sort of thing there too. And, and so that, you know, whoever rode in and around them there just needed to pick up on that, you know, and um, it's, it's not easy to copy those sort of things either. It's you know, a lot of it, you know, you're born bred, you know, you'd be probably foolish to um, not give coaches credit, you know, certainly, you know, Jürgen would have had a big impact on the things that those sort of guys did, but at the end of the day, you know, the athletes generally put those attributes to the fore and so therefore, you know, they will capitalise on it and as coaches we've got to capitalise on it as well. Yeah, and um, I mean, we've, we spoke, we've been, the bit, a lot of discussions have been around now the, the Kiwi pair and we've spoken extensively on the Awesome Foursome now. But your, your coaching path is taking you from, you know, coaching certain crews to really achieve incredible things, but also certain positions that are maybe more of a overseer role and, you know, really having a different take on, on the, the role of the coach. And I want to chat a bit about, you know, your 2004 campaign with the Australian men's team because you were men's head coach at the time and the results from the men's side at the, that Olympic Games is incredibly incredibly successful i mean if i was the on a board of the selectors of the ic in australia and i saw how many you qualified uh, a boat i mean yeah you qualified a boat in every single event on the men's side and came away with obviously the gold medal and the pair with uh, ginn and tompkins but also a second place in lightweight men's four a bronze in the men's eight and then 
uh, everyone else, all the other events were full at the Olympics. And I just want to speak to you. What are your thoughts on that success? And what, what's it like as a head coach overseer and being in charge of all these different boats and how to make all these different um, you know, pieces of the puzzle come together and get something like that? Yeah, look, that's probably been the, almost the biggest challenge I've actually had. And um, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in it in any way, shape or form. Uh, um, I think you, we all need to be aspirational. And I was, you know, I'd been a state head coach. I'd been Olympic coach. You know, we'd, we'd sort of won a couple of races here and there. And so an opportunity came to be able to, you know, take a higher level leadership and, yeah, when you're sitting below it, you're always critical of those above you. You always reckon that they're doing a terrible job and you could do it better. And so um, I've been one of those as well too. And so then you think, well, I'll put my hand up and try and take the top job and see what, what I can actually do it. And it gives you a completely different perspective, you know, when you're looking at the top down rather than, you know, looking up at what's actually happening there too. And, uh, you know, you need to be pretty resilient about it because, you know, you're dealing with multiple people. You know, you, when you're a crew coach, you've just got your own responsibilities and you're trying to get your own crew. You know, when you're a head coach, you know, you've got that multiplied by however many crews you might have in the team and how many coaches. And, of course, each coach will have a different personality and the like. So, so there, there, there are really significant challenges to it. So I wouldn't say that I went in there with any great expertise about how to do the job. So probably learnt as I went. Um, but someone, someone has to do the job. You know, I was still more experienced than probably anyone else there too. So, you know, I probably wasn't the wrong person at the time. But um, you know, it was, certainly wasn't an area where I, I was necessarily an expert. But m- mainly it was about empowering the coaches to be able to have enough autonomy to do. We had good coaches and we had good athletes. So it was a bit of don't stuff it up. And the hardest thing to do was at times where you knew you needed to corral everyone together. You know, it's all very well to give that autonomy and let crews do what they needed to do. But running the organisation, it was never going to work if you just let them just go their own direction and do whatever they want to actually do because – you know, you've got to take the team away and there's a whole heap of uh, administrative overlay that's really important that we're on the same wavelength and we can work together and, and do that. So that was a big challenge for me to try and get that right. Um, and, and we did, you know, which is a really pleasing thing. Um, we, we had the, we had an interesting start of the four years because we, we, we struggled through 2001, um, 2002, but there, I had some really good senior athletes. Simon Burgess was a lightweight four. He was our team men's team captain, and I had some really good loyal coaches, sort of you know working with me. And the girls were doing really well. And uh, Harold Yarling was heading up the girls' side of it. And you know, Harold, I got him pretty well with Harold, but you know he 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 wanted to try and take over the whole show. So he was very very much making sure everybody knew the girls were going well and the boys weren't going that well so there was a little sort of tiny glint in all the boys there too just watch us you know when it really matters 2003 to qualify 2004 we're going to keep coming up this olympic cycle and good luck to them you know whether they can actually maintain the rage that they started with and unfortunately as a team you know, that's that's how it actually went, you know, and the boys had a really wonderful sort of escalation through the four years and, and the girls actually struggled and, of course, soured somewhat by the Sally Robbins incident, um, you know, in Athens as well there too. So we looked like we came out chocolates and um, uh, from the whole thing, but it wasn't necessarily 
you know, planned out over four years. It was we just had to work at it and work at it and work at it. So uh, it is an interesting period in time. Those days they used to give out a men's award at the Olympic Games, you know, which country, where, where was the rank order now? Thankfully, in one sense, you know, they do it just on medals for the whole team and the like. But then there was a who's the best women's nation, who's the best men's, and we came out as the best men's nation. So in one sense, if you become egotistical, you go, oh, I better put that on the resume or whatever. Yeah. But um, that, that that was actually collective of us all working really well together and, and you know, that was yeah, good times. Sweet. So that is a wrap of part one, Noel Donaldson. And I'm sure that you guys enjoyed that as much as we did because that was such a banger episode. And I'm sure you guys are going to be on your edge of your seats for, for part two. Part two, yeah. Jake, what is your big takeaways? Yeah, so so for me, the biggest thing is like I, I am I'm acutely aware of like obviously Lawrence and I, you've been in the rowing game for a while and you know we, we rowed at quite a high level. So you know, I'd, I'd consider us a bit of rowing nerds. So I'm quite careful when you speak to athletes on the show to try and not get too far in in depth on like the technical elements. And for once, I decided with Noel, I'm going to actually just kind of go in there a bit. bit. And I'm, I, that's the part I think I enjoyed the most was trying to talk about, you know, the rhythm, trying to get a little bit more definition around that um, because it's so hard to talk about rhythm and, and just the technique and stuff. And... I think for you know you, those of you out there um, that enjoy that part, you're gonna love it. And those of you that you know maybe not haven't been a big fan of maybe that part of rowing, I flip you if you're not a big fan. Now, is, I don't know what to do. Who's not a big fan of of talking about <laughs> you want to be fast? You want to be fast? You got to know your thing. So yeah, that's I think that's what the part I really enjoyed because you know Noel, we've spoken about how knowledgeable he is, and just having a coach out there that knows his thing. I mean, he's he's wise beyond his uh, years. And I think, yeah, that's definitely for me the the, the takeaway. Yeah, and I think uh, for me the takeaway is just the like uh, knitting all the stories together, like having Jen's stories, having uh, Eric Murray's stories, and now we finally have the coach's stories. So it's it's really cool. And he actually brings in even more of that in part two. So I think that's going to be such a – it's going to be awesome. So thanks for listening, guys. And uh, I think that's enough of us for today. It's our last day in Lesotho. We're busy recording this and then packing it up to head home finally back to a little bit of civilization before we're off to, to Switzerland. And we'll hear from you guys soon and you'll yeah. hear from us even sooner. Sweet. That's enough. Cheers, guys. Go follow us on Instagram. Get in, in touch with us if you want. Cheers. Have a good, oh, and Patreon. good weekend. And if you Patreon. Want more, if you want more If you content. want more content, guys, if you want more content, go check us out on Patreon. Cheers. Yeah, we're going to do some cool stuff. Uh, I think maybe whilst we're in Switzerland, we'll, we'll hit, a, hit you guys up with some cool stuff. Sweet. We're out. Also was involved after 2012 with Dong Tik, uh, Dick Tongs. He got involved.